Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we know that this is a strange Sunday. We know that I'm under examination in a sense, and rightly so. Uh, But I ask that that would not be a distraction. I ask that my accent, my appearance, my mannerisms, nothing of that would matter, but that your spirit would be teaching your word to your people and lives would be changed. We ask this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Well, good morning. In uh, thinking through what to preach today, I settled on Psalm 77 really for two reasons. Uh, The first is just that, well, I only have one Sunday, so I didn't want to drop you right in the middle of a context that was hard to explain, and the Psalms can somewhat be taken one at a time. But secondly, Psalm 77 has been really important in my own life, and I hope that by preaching through it, you'd learn a little bit more about me, and also that the Lord would use this psalm for change in your life as well. And if you're new to the Christian church, or if you're just generally unfamiliar with the psalms, I think you'll note fairly quickly that this was originally a song. Uh, we've got these strange instructions to a choir master right at the start. Um, and it says, according to Jeduthun. Well, Chronicles actually tells us who Jeduthun was. He was a worship leader who prophesied with the lyre in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. So just imagine that a thousand years before Christ, um, a guy with a, a small harp wrote music, we can assume, that accompanied these words. Um, for me, it, it helps just to remember that th- this was written by real people for real people. And at that time, this would have been a, a new song. And uh, maybe it was catchy. Maybe they got it stuck in their heads the way we do a song from the radio. Um, and I hope that that can, can um, sort of jumpstart that process in our lives, too, that whether it's through the music of, of musicians uh, or maybe if you're musical, you would write a tune to go with a psalm. Or even if it's just maybe you're not musical, but you, you uh, post the words in front of your workplace or in your car or someplace where you can meditate on these words. I, I hope that we can have that same sort of ownership of these songs that the original audience did because they're God's gift to us. And we see that this is a psalm of Asaph. Um, he wrote these words. Asaph, we learn about also in Chronicles, that he was a Levite, and he served as a singer in the tabernacle after King David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. So Asaph wrote at least 12 of the psalms, including this one. Before we get into his text, let me share a story that this psalm reminded me of. Uh, I was having a conversation with a friend in China, and he wanted to teach me about the differences between our cultures, and he used a story to do that. He said, imagine that there is a plane that is certainly going to crash, and a lot of the people have been evacuated already, but there are three passengers left, but only one parachute. Now, the first passenger is a clear-thinking elderly gentleman. Let's say he's 85 years old. The second passenger is a 40-year-old man. He has two children at home. He has a good job, um, in good health. And then the third passenger is a six-year-old boy, just full of energy and life. Who gets the parachute? Well, I answered that I thought the six-year-old boy should because, well, he has his whole life in front of him. And it would be you know, much more tragic if, if he were to die than the others who... 
you know, had had a chance at life already. And who knows what great things this, this young boy would go on to do. My friend said, I knew you would answer that way. You Westerners, it's, it's always about what's new, what's uh, uncertain, what's possible. But you have to understand that for us in Eastern cultures, we would say the elderly man every time. And I was intrigued by that, so I asked for further explanation. He said, it would be the greatest tragedy of all if that man's many memories were lost forever. Now, whether you agree with his conclusion or not, I think we can agree that it is a great tragedy when memories are lost forever, especially memories that are useful to society. Memories have power, great power. The things we do every day, you know, when you go to work, I'm sure there are processes that you have to go through, and you have to remember how they work in order to do your job well. Memories are powerful also. They help us in our relationships. If... um, You know, if I couldn't remember your name, you'd probably forgive me today. But if, God willing, we come to Maple Avenue and six months from now, I still can't remember your name despite the many introductions we've had, well, we're probably going to have a relational problem, right? And, And that's because it hurts when people's memories don't include us. And that's what makes, um, makes it so heartbreaking when Alzheimer's strikes a member of our family. Memories can help us also to accomplish unthinkable goals. Uh, Even though my present physique may not suggest it, I've run two marathons in my life. And um, it was memory, largely, that helped me to do it. Uh, Your training schedule, it goes up a little bit in distance every week. And and sometimes you just want to quit. But then you remember, hey, I, I ran almost this far last week. I can go a little bit further, a little bit faster. Oh, and I remember this burning feeling in my gut, and I remember that eventually it's going to go away, and I remember that if I finish the course, I'll be thankful in the end. And memory can also be used in the darkest of times. How, uh, history is full of examples where there, there are battles, uh, and the, the outnumbered forces somehow win because their commander in the critical moment reminded them of the importance of everything they were fighting for. Well, I think that today Asaph here in this psalm wants to teach us about a very good use for our memories, an essential use of our memories. We must use our memories well if we're to live this Christian life all the way to the end. Let's, uh, let's look at how he gets started here with a cry of distress in verses 1 through 3. I'll reread that. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Now, before we even consider Asaph's situation, I don't want to skip over those four words at the end of verse 1. He says, he will hear me. He will hear me. How can Asaph be so confident? How can any sinful person be so confident that God will listen to one's prayer? Well, we have to understand that there's a baseline relationship here that allows Asaph to be bold in his prayers to God. He knows for certain that he's a member of the covenant family of God. He knows that God will not abandon him, that God has committed himself to his people with many promises. So if you're here this morning and that sort of confidence seems strange, if that sort of 
uh, belonging to a family seems strange, then I'm glad you're here. And it's possible that this might seem a little bit like listening into a family conversation and you're not quite sure what's going on. Uh, but I hope you do listen, and I hope that seeing this honest communication here between Asaph and his God, that that'll do two things for you. First, I think it could help keep you from having a sugar-coated understanding of Christianity. But secondly, I think it'll show you that our God is faithful, even in these depths. We don't know the specific of these depths. We don't know precisely what Asaph is going through. Um, to me... It seems like this is an intensely personal situation, some circumstances that uniquely affect him. But some have argued uh, the opposite. They argue that, well, since this became a hymn for the congregation, maybe it's addressing some sort of societal problem. Maybe there was a plague or a, a, a famine or great loss in warfare. I would argue that even if that were true, what, what you mourn about is how the situation affects you personally. And um, we certainly see a lot of first-person singular language here. But we don't have the details, and, and I think that is probably for the, for the best, that the exact cause of his grief is, is vague. Because that, that means that um, the psalm is flexible. It means that it's timeless. It means that it's broad enough to apply to whatever we're going through today. Whatever the trouble is, we do know that it's intense, and we know that it leaves Asaph wondering if God has rejected him or his people forever. And so he cries aloud to God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been so troubled that maybe all you can say is, oh God, a loved one dies, a serious disease is diagnosed, someone you trusted has a huge moral failing, or maybe your life goals seem to have fallen apart. A spouse betrays or abandons you. A child is stillborn. A crime is experienced. Or it may be something more subtle than that. It, it may just be something that's built up over time. Maybe you've repented of your sins, but the consequences of them are finally catching up with you. Or maybe something has happened that makes you feel like a failure as a parent, and you feel foolish and disappointed. Or maybe it's a lingering sickness or a constant temptation that is just a struggle every day. Maybe it's barrenness or loneliness or a spiritual and emotional dryness that's descended on you and you just feel numb and all of life feels vain. Well, we all have a decision to make in times like that. We could resign ourselves to, to just being paralyzed until the circumstances change. We could numb ourselves. We could just grasp for any sort of pleasure that's available just to try to forget what's going on. Or we could be stoic. We could, we could say, you know, I'm not going to talk about this. It's, it's my issue. I'm just going to be self-sufficient and muscle through it. But I would argue that any of those are actually godless responses. And Asaph tells us, his initial course of action here. He says, In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. His prayer is intense, and we know that he does feel distant from God, and yet he commits himself to pursuing God with his problems. He commits himself to this good path of looking to God alone. He knows that he can't comfort himself. He knows that other people can't comfort him. 
that would just be a delusion to even try. So he commits himself to this path of seeking the Lord alone. But there's also an awareness on these pages that that pursuit isn't necessarily a quick fix. And one could say that that tension, there's a tension here that he's going to God and yet he feels like he's getting nothing back. He feels like God is not responding. And I think that that tension is really what this psalm is meant to address. In verse 2, we see that he's persistent in this crying out to God. He continues into the night without wearying. We can imagine him just sobbing and pouring out prayers. His hand is stretched out, almost like a drowning man reaching for help. But there's no safety. There's no resolution for Asaph. His soul refuses to be comforted. In fact, he says that these meditations on God seem to make him feel worse. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like when you seek God in prayer, you're getting nothing back? You're exhausted. It seems to be making things worse. What were those circumstances? Well, we see in verse 4 that he goes on from this cry of distress to more of a questioning plea. Um, Verse 4 You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Now, why would meditating on God seem to make things worse for Asaph? I think we have a clue in verse 4 when he says, You hold my eyelids open. He's not naive here. He knows that God is not ignorant of his circumstances. He knows that God is not caught off guard by his circumstances. And that's why thinking of God hurts, in part because he knows that God certainly could have prevented this if he had wanted to. He goes on to say, I'm so troubled that that I I can't speak. Imagine asking him, Asaph, what's wrong? Uh, uh, You know, just gibberish. So in verse 5, he considers a new strategy. He thinks about the days of old. It's like he's, he's rewinding the tape of his life or of, of the community's experience. He's looking to, to go back in time, hit play there, and hope that it'll make more sense of his current circumstances as he considers the past. Remember, he's a song leader for Israel. So he tries to remember a song in the night. He wants to remember the songs that used to give him hope in times of darkness. And that's a great example to us. I know that James recently mentioned a time when he and Karen uh, were discouraged and they couldn't sleep. So they opened a hymnal and sang the truths of God back to him. And certainly we see that response modeled for us also in Acts 16 with Paul and Silas singing in prison. But as Asaph shows us here, the right responses don't always lead to better feelings, at least not immediately. 
here in Psalm 77, this intentional remembering, this, this diligent searching for a song actually leaves him feeling more dead inside. He remembers God's promises, but then he comes up at a loss for how God could possibly be keeping his word. And I can imagine that if you're not a Christian here today, these sorts of challenges to God by Asaph might be confusing. You might be tempted to think, really, is this the the life of faith that is supposed to seem desirable to me? I mean, this God doesn't even show up when his people are in need. Is he not powerful? Is he not good? Their lives don't seem any better because of trusting in him. Martyrs, misfits, suckers. It seems that people who take this stuff seriously are just left screaming desperate prayers into the wind like this Asaph guy. That could certainly be one response to the questions here. But I think that this questioning by Asaph also makes some Christians feel uncomfortable too. They think, "Mm, should one really be talking to or talking about God in this way? It feels irreverent. It feels even belligerent. To accuse God of forgetting to be merciful? To suggest that maybe his promises won't come true? Or that his love is failing in some way? What makes this sort of questioning any different from a bitter and mocking sneer of, of someone who's about ready to walk away from the faith for good? Should we rebuke Asaph here instead of emulating him? Well, I think that both of these concerns are missing to some measure the nature of true Christian faith and both are flattening the Christian experience to look at it as just a, a series of transactions like, like maybe a cosmic vending machine where you know these Christians are putting in coins of prayers and good deeds and then they get goodies out. They get blessings to give them the hashtag blessed life and all that that involves. And so from that perspective... If there's ever a lack of peace or prosperity or general upward trending, then you could say, aha, this must be evidence that the whole thing is fake anyway. But thankfully, the Christian life portrayed in the Bible is nothing like that. It's nothing like that. It's not at all about our misguided attempts at morality. It's, uh, it shows that they're actually worthless to God. It shows that, that we can't bring God to ourselves but that God, in his kindness and love, has brought us to himself through Christ. It's a dynamic relational process. Through ups and downs, he wants to mold and reshape our lives so that they will actually be infinitely better than if we had all of those temporal blessings that we crave anyway. And so Asaph here is staying engaged with that dialogue through the ups and downs, through the hardship, because he knows that God is good. God is incredibly benevolent, but he's complex in his dealings with his people. And as for those who are feeling the the second objection, that maybe Asaph's questioning seems irreverent in nature. Shouldn't he keep his doubts silent? Shouldn't he just submit to God's timing for change? Shouldn't he speak positive truths like, God is good all the time? Shouldn't he be joyful? Christians are supposed to be joyful. If these are your impulse responses in times of trouble to to sort of uh, paste the smile on your face, I want to explore with you the honesty that God calls us to in prayer and in how we talk about our experience with him. 
first, let's note that these are questions. These aren't cynical statements like, well, God doesn't even remember his promises to me anyway. It's not like that. And these aren't the end of the psalm. Asaph doesn't stop here. He keeps going. And I think we'll see that there is very much a role for questions like this in our communication with our God. I want you to see that his willingness to grapple with God through these questions is actually a sign of his desire to be close to God. Even though it sounds like he's challenging God, biblically speaking, this sort of struggle, this sort of striving with God is vastly preferable to the response of those who don't even deal with their trouble in relation to God. And I'm speaking of myself there to some degree. While I have no trouble talking about my troubles with really anyone who will, lis- will listen to me, um, or I, have, I don't have trouble rehashing my troubles in my own mind, speaking to myself about them, rarely is it my first response to go to God. And why is that? Am I uncomfortable with the process that Asaph is going through? Am I seeking redemption from people rather than God? Or do I doubt his goodness or his patience? Do I fear that he's going to condemn me for being frantic and fearful? But emotional questions are expressed by even the greatest of those who love God in the Old Testament. You can think of Job, who had no trouble asking God, basically, why in the world did you even let me be born? Or you can think of Habakkuk, who felt freedom to ask, God, do you, do you still care about justice? Because I'm having a hard time seeing it. And God did not condemn either of these men. Instead, he patiently instructed them. Do you feel that freedom to simply pour your heart out before God? God, what are you up to here? Will you keep me in this hopeless place forever? And our wording in that process will inevitably be less perfect than Jesus was. Our wording may be sloppy. Our thoughts may be irrational. Our desires may be confused. But God wants to shepherd our souls through that process. And the use of questions can sometimes be the very path to rediscovery and fuller understanding of who God is. I mean, various psalms ask, Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Why do you cast us off forever? Will you forget me forever? Why do you cast my soul away? In asking these questions and expressing these doubts, the heart of the psalmist actually comes to a resting place. It's like a back door to hope. Because in asking these questions, he knows. He knows deep down that the God of Abraham can't deny himself. He can't cut himself off from his people. So, God is pleased with our running to him for relief. Grappling with him for answers. Rather than going to mere men or to the fleeting wisdom of this world. Now, how long are we meant to pause between verse 9 and verse 10. Because in verse 10, we see a turning point. We see Asaph getting out of this this rut, so to speak. We don't know how long that process took between verses 8 and 9. And I think we should be patient with ourselves and with others if that gap seems to be longer than it should. What if these questions continue for days, weeks, months? But as we stay engaged, 
verse 10 does come, and it's the turning point of the whole psalm. What makes this decision, you know, you see he, he decides here, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Well, what makes this decision to remember any different from the remembering that he did in verse 3 or the considering that he did in verse 5? I mean, those attempts to remember didn't seem to, they seemed to make things worse for him. So what's different here as he uh, remembers the years of the right hand of the Most High? It's possible that there's nothing different. Perhaps he just needed to persist and try again, and the Spirit blessed this second or third attempt um, as he stayed engaged in communication with God. I do think that there's a lesson in perseverance for us here. But it's also possible that he's remembering God in a different way this time around. Maybe before, his thoughts about God kept drifting back to maybe God's heavy hand of discipline toward his people. We know that out of God's kindness, he often thwarts our plans and blocks our way until he has all of our hearts. He does that because he's good and he's kind. And that's a true meditation. That's a true remembrance of who God is. But I'm not sure if it's the remembrance that would help Asaph in this day of trouble. It may not get him out of the rut of despair. Or perhaps he was remembering God and the times of peace and flourishing and joy in his walk with God. Maybe he was, his songs in the night were sweet remembrances of those times. How good it was to be among the people of God and to feel like all of life was making sense. Those can be sweet remembrances. But in the hour of trouble, that nostalgic sentimentality has little power to lift us out of despair. So in verse 10, Asaph turns to a very specific set of remembrances about God. He appeals to the years of the right hand of the Most High. We know that that word appeals, it's not just remembering. It's remembering and then invoking, saying, God, I remember how you acted this way. I want you to act that way again toward me. And to speak of the right hand of God is a metaphor It speaks of his saving power. So the years of his right hand are a remembrance of times when he powerfully redeemed his people, even as is reiterated in uh, verse 15. The name of God used here, Most High, Elion, that goes back to Melchizedek, who said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. That name emphasizes God's control over all of the created order certainly including Asaph's circumstances here. So we see him turning from a contemplation of his own problems and turning to a contemplation of God's deeds, his wonders, his works, his way that is holy. In seeing God as holy, Asaph is is thinking of how separate God is, how his ways are much higher than our ways, how we cannot understand his purposes in their fullness. And those meditations make him say, what God is great like our God? Even that sentence is echoing the song of Moses right after the Red Sea crossing. And that's exactly what Asaph goes on to remember in these last verses here. Why? Why, why would you, um, you know, things are going horribly in your life. Why would he grasp for the crossing of the Red Sea and God's uh, miraculous provision there. 
I think a clue is, is um, provided for us in Exodus 2. Uh, just before Moses was raised up, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. If you're Asaph, you definitely want to remember those times when God heard the cry of his people. He saw their plight, and he knew. Now, as he unpacks the Red Sea incident, notice this graphic imagery here in in verses 16 to 18. I mean, he, he talks about the waters were afraid and trembled. God's arrows flashed on every side. His thunder was in the whirlwind. His lightnings lighted up the world. The earth shook and trembled. At first glance, we might think, like, whoa, there's a lot here that Moses forgot to write down. He did not mention earthquakes. He did not mention these battles with water. But remember, this is poetry. And the focus is it's a little bit less on reporting things as they actually appeared and more on reporting things as they actually meant. So poetry is not meant to be a detailed report like we'd find in historical writings. No, this is looking back at the true meaning of the events. And it's actually similar, uh, very similar to the song of Deborah in Judges 5, which you'll study in a few weeks. It looks back at a battle that has just happened, and it uses all this cataclysmic imagery. But what that does... What that serves to to reinforce is this meaning that when God acts, the world is stirred up and changed. Evil order is disbanded, and the forces of chaos are subdued. Everyone has to pay attention when God acts. And if you are his enemy, then there's, there's nothing more terrifying than when God acts with the power of his right hand. And if you're God's friend, there's nothing more awesome to behold than when God acts to save his people. Now this psalm ends with um, verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I think it's intentional that he mentions those two historic leaders of God's people. You'll remember that they had plenty of questions and doubts of their own, and yet God met Moses and Aaron in their frailty and he used them to lead his people like a good shepherd. So though Asaph's lament began with this feeling of of frantic desperation, it ends here with a very pastoral feeling, much like the 23rd Psalm. We remember the nature of our God who leads us through what seems like death on purposeful paths of righteousness. You know, one thing that I, I really, really like about this psalm is its vague ending. I mean... There, there is nothing here to tie back to Asaph's original circumstances. There's nothing here like, you know, after remembering these things, I felt so much better. And the pressure started to let up and mm, God is good. No, there's, there's no response like that. For all we know, the circumstances continued. Maybe they remained for months or years. Maybe they were even a, a painful illness that lasted the rest of his life. We don't know. But whatever his personal outcome in the short run, Asaph had remembered his larger role and destiny as part of the people of God. 
and that would be more than enough to sustain him. And I believe that everyone here is in one of three camps. Either you are in the day of trouble right now, and this psalm seems timely. Maybe the day of trouble is just around the corner, and God is giving you this psalm as preparation. Or maybe you're, you're feeling like day of trouble? How about life of trouble? I, I can't discern when it, st- when it starts and when it ends. I feel like I'm always in a need to cry aloud to God and I'm, and, and I'm troubled like this. Now, whichever of those camps you're in, I want you to know that Psalm 77 has very good news for you. I don't know the specifics of your trouble, but God does. And as we mentioned at the start, this psalm is more than broad enough to apply to whatever you're going through. And the first piece of good news is that Jesus Christ has suffered the plight of Asaph in this psalm even more fully than Asaph himself, even more fully than what you're going through or, or I've gone through. Um, and, you know, the psalms were used by Jesus. He knew them. He used them as his prayer book. He knew these words before us today. And we can imagine Jesus turning to these words as people he knew died, as he dealt with hardship, slander, rejection, as he dealt with the tragedy in in the lives of other people who were all under the sway of sin. And Hebrews tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears so we can cry out like this with confidence because our Lord also did so such as in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the cross as well, he claimed the questioning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as the Father vindicated Jesus and restored him to joy and fellowship with him, he'll do the same for those who are in Jesus' footsteps, those for whom God is their only hope. Jesus showed us that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of of them all. So Jesus is our model in crying out to God as in the first half of this psalm. But he's also the very God whose saving acts we remember in the last half of the psalm. 1,000 years after Asaph, Jesus' disciples saw with their own eyes on the stormy sea of Galilee that his path was through the great waters. And that wasn't Jesus' first time commanding the sea or leaving unseen footprints on the water. Jude verse 5 actually says that it was Jesus who saved a people out of Egypt. The second person of the Trinity was there, active at the Exodus even before his incarnation. 1,400 years later, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, accompanied by the same Moses as well as Elijah. And Luke specifically says that these two visitors asked Jesus about the Exodus he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They drew a connection between what had happened at the Red Sea and what was about to happen on the cross, and we should draw that connection as well. Asaph recalled that crossing the Red Sea, uh, you know, it had happened centuries before he was born, and yet he owned it. He remembered it because it was the greatest act of deliverance by God that had been accomplished to his day. As Moses stretched out his hand, God delivered them from bondage. They passed through what seemed like death, but they rose again out of the waters on the other side, watching their enemies destroyed behind them, 
setting them on a sure path to the promised land. But there is a greater Moses. And Jesus accomplished your exodus on the cross outside of Jerusalem. As he stretched out his hands, the earth trembled and shook again. And his path was through the miry waters of sin and death. But he came out on the other side of the tomb, having disarmed the enemies of God and freed us to live in a sure hope of life with him in the new heavens and new earth. And this is the greatest act of deliverance that God has ever accomplished. And it makes us who we are as a people. It defines our true reality, even when circumstances look bleak and hopeless. And I think that this is the point of the whole psalm, that when it feels like there's no redemption for you, when it feels like there's no possible redemption out of your circumstances, praise God for the redemption he has already accomplished. When the waters of chaos seem to stand between you and the life that God created you to know, when the armies of the evil one seem to be hunting you down to capture your will, remember, remember, remember how you've already been delivered. Remember the Christ event. Think on the cross and the resurrection. Tap into the collective memory of the church recorded on these pages of scripture. After you do this, it will reorient you on your only lasting hope. But your circumstances may remain unchanged. They may. But you will be changed. And that is what God is doing. Maybe even like Asaph, you are one who's appointed to lead others in worship. Maybe you have a ministry role in the church or you're the leader of your household or you're the most reliable Christian voice in your workplace. Maybe you you feel like you haven't had much to offer because of what you're going through. I hope you notice Asaph's honesty. He doesn't put a smile on and fake it. And I think that Christian leaders who do live out of a facade that pretends to always be joyful and healthy and stable, who never acknowledge their own weakness and sadness and failure, I think that those leaders are in danger of destroying themselves and others along the way. So I want to encourage you to take time to lament before God. And in that lamenting, remember and take courage. Because God's promises are not at an end for all time. His grace is available to you again today. But it requires that you zoom out from your circumstances. Zoom out and connect with the experience of the people of God across time. And speak and act from that experience, knowing in faith that it is your experience as well. Let me pray for us. God of Moses and Aaron, we praise you that you are a faithful shepherd in even the most troubled waters. And we ask that you would give us greater grace to remember, to remember the exodus that Jesus accomplished for us and to live in light of that reality. In his name we pray, amen.